From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. After more than a year of sustained weekly demonstrations, in March 2020, the COVID pandemic came to the rescue of a contested government seen as illegitimate by many in Algeria, forcing the popular Hirak movement to suspend its protest throughout the country in the interest of public health and safety. The vaccination campaign has been disastrous, to say the least. Till now, I checked the number today, it's only 10% of the population, so around 4 million that have been fully vaccinated. And Algeria is not faring well compared with other neighboring countries. One year and a half later, the North African country is now beset by multiple deep crises after a series of devastating fires swept across the country a month ago, exacerbating the political and health crisis that preceded them. Khalil Bendib speaks with London-based Algerian activist and researcher Hamza Homoshin about the way these multiple catastrophes are affecting the country and how people are coping. The situation has been really devastating when it comes um, to the pandemic this summer in Algeria. There has been a third wave of the pandemic. It was the deadliest so far in the country, with thousands of hospitalizations and hundreds of deaths, including in my own family. And this has been really shocking for the nation. It was not expected that the third wave would be as deadly as this. And it happened in other countries as well. Tunisia faced a much worse third wave than the first and second waves. Actually, Tunisia last year was one of the countries that installed restrictions on travel, on movement. They managed the pandemic at the start. But the third wave has been deadly in so many countries in the African continent and the global south. For me, the scale of this tragedy is not simply due to the high transmissibility of the virus, but to the collapse of the health systems, including in Algeria, which simply couldn't cope, as those systems have been hollowed and underfunded for decades following the neoliberal turns in the 80s. For example, in Algeria, we've seen an acute crisis in oxygen provision. I've been following some social media posts and videos. We've seen surreal scenes in hospitals where some patients had access to oxygen because their own families could get it for them from the market, if it is ever found in the market. We've seen also some communities even diverting lorries carrying the oxygen to their own local hospitals at the expense of others. These chaotic scenes were not only a testimony of the Algerian ruling classes' incompetence and sheer mismanagement of the crisis, but points to a more global problem of health inequality, poor public services that have been undermined by structural adjustment programs, privatizations dictated by the international financial institutions and implemented by our own corrupt and parasitic elites. And in here, just I want to say something like an anecdote. The company that is monopolizing the production of industrial and medical gases in Algeria now is controlled by a German multinational called Lindy Gas, 
That company has been public till 2007 when it has been privatized under the rule of Bouteflika, specifically by his brother, Saeed. It was called the um, National Company of Industrial Gases. That has been privatized. Just to give an example of that such strategic sectors that are important to the economy, that are important to the health of people, to their livelihoods, shouldn't be privatized. Absolutely. And the same thing happened in my family. I don't think one family in Algeria has been spared. We all have large families. We know people who died. My brother-in-law, this summer, was trying desperately to send a respirator to his brother who was on the verge of dying. So you're right. There are people who have different means, different connections, maybe a brother in France who receive a respirator right next to people who don't have anything. It's quite chaotic and quite pitiful. In terms of the vaccine distribution, that's something also that's been a handicap for Algeria. Just a month ago or so, it was about 5% of the population Mm -hmm. that had been vaccinated. How is Algeria faring in terms of how many people are, are getting vaccinated? For a country of this size, which is roughly 40 million, just about the same size as as California, yeah. And then for uh, a country that, let's say, the ruling regime that likes to portray Algeria as one of the regional powers, the vaccination campaign has been disastrous, to say the least. Till now, I checked the number today, it's only 10% of the population, so around 4 million that have been fully vaccinated. And Algeria is not faring well compared with other neighboring countries, including Morocco and Tunisia. Tunisia has been receiving a lot of charitable donations after the health crisis in the summer. But nevertheless, Algeria started the vaccination campaign since, talking about it at least since December 2020, January 2021. And there were promises to manufacture the Russian vaccine, Sputnik, in the country, promises that have not materialized at all. So for now, as I said, it's just around 10% of the population that have been fully vaccinated, and most of the vaccines came from COVAX. So Algeria had around 2 million AstraZeneca uh, vaccines delivered to them, and then half a million the Sinovac, the Chinese vaccine, And I think around 600,000 donated by the U.S., um, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But then we shouldn't forget that this is a global situation of vaccine apartheid. Most of the countries that are really advanced in their vaccination campaign are in the global north, advanced countries in the Western world, including the country that I'm, I'm living in right now in the U.K., Right now in the UK, for example, the adult population fully vaccinated is around 90%. Compare this to a country like Algeria, which is 10%. And there are even worse numbers in other African countries and in other countries on the global south. So that's why we always need, of course, we cannot absolve the ruling elites with their mismanagement and lack of foresight. But this is a global problem where countries in the global south are not getting equitable treatments when it comes to vaccine delivery. The COVAX, that international initiative where the World Health Organization is involved with with other private sector actors, is not delivering enough. And there is a kind of 
vaccine nationalism or vaccine hoarding here in the global north. So here in the UK, for example, the government is starting the, the campaign for a booster, so a third dose of the vaccine. And they are even thinking of vaccinating teenagers and children, whereas the majority of the global population, especially the most vulnerable and the elderly, have not been vaccinated. So this situation is going to be an ongoing business, unfortunately. The Algerian diaspora, even here in California, I'm sure throughout the world, has mobilized like never before to try to help their brethren in the old country. And uh, the government in Algeria seems to want to interfere even on that level and manage that, <laughs> that spontaneous help, try to channel it. Yeah, in Europe, th there have been many, many initiatives. France, the UK, Switzerland, Italy and Spain. As usual, the Algerian diaspora is part and parcel of the Algerian population. They do really care about what's happening in the country and they have strong ties to their countries. And whenever there is a crisis, Algerians always mobilize to send help, either financial or medical help, to help you know, their brothers and sisters. But to be honest, I'm not surprised the Algerian authorities' response to such autonomous and independent initiatives because they always consider them as a threat to their rule. So any initiative that doesn't come under their control or under their tutelage, it gets blocked through bureaucracy, through authoritarian practices. And that's what happened within the pandemic. We've seen a lot of administrative and bureaucratic blockages here in embassies and consulates to send uh, financial and medical help um, to Algerians in the country. The protest movement known as the Hirak that started in 2018 and managed to get rid of the president at the time, Aziz Bouteflika, uh, last year came to a halt because of the threat of COVID. Is it still hobbled by the pandemic situation or are people starting to demonstrate again? Just to say it clearly, COVID-19 pandemic has been a blessing to the regime in Algeria. The movement was really strong and the momentum was gathering. Millions were still in the streets demanding the demilitarization of the republic, demanding meaningful and radical change, demanding an independence from that military state. But the pandemic came at the wrong moment because, as you said, the, the popular movement, the Hirak, decided to hold its weekly protests after celebrating its one-year anniversary in February. I believe that the protests stopped in mid-March, and I think that was a wise move in order to, to protect the health of, of the Algerian people. But the regime took that opportunity to double down on its repressive measures. We've seen during the pandemic hundreds of arrests of activists, of journalists, We've seen a curtailment of media, censoring of online sites. We've seen an intimidation and harassment of journalists and activists. We've even seen torture in jail. And there are horrific stories from many activists in Algeria who escaped, who went into exile, telling about their stories. So the pandemic, you could say, it was a counter-revolutionary element, but even the pandemic couldn't stop the movement. 
because a few months later, I think nine or 10 months later, specifically around the second anniversary of the uprising, that was February 2000, earlier this year, 2021, there have been calls from various civil society organizations and political figures to revive the movement. And we've seen some protests for a few weeks, mainly in the Kabili region, Tiziwuzu, Bijaya, Buira, and in the capital, and some other wilayas here and there. But it wasn't as massive and huge as before, but it returned. And the regime took the repressive measures to stop that movement. Arrests, intimidations, creating fears, trying to fan the flames of division in the country. So you could say that effectively the popular movement, at least its protests, at least its presence in the street has stopped. There are some contestations here and there, some protests here and there, but I wouldn't call it a popular movement right now. Speaking of Kabylia, it has always been in the forefront of social protest in the country. It has always been a leader, and often that was manipulated and instrumentalized by the government to say, well, you see, it's those Berber speakers among you who are really trying to foment trouble, etc., etc. Unfortunately, this summer, Kabylia suffered some horrendous fires, something that had never happened before in the history of Algeria. And God knows we're used to terrible fires in that country. It's a very arid country. The summertime is always problematic, but this year has been beyond what anybody had seen, especially in Kabylia. And in this context of protest and mobilization against a corrupt government, it's complicated because not only the physical damage happens and people are, more than 90 people died in those fires. People are suffering in their flesh, in their beings, But on top of that, there are all sorts of conspiracy theories. There's all sorts of people fanning the flames, literally, of discontent. Tell us a little bit more how the fires have affected that region of Algeria, which is the heart of Algeria, and at the same time how some people have been trying to weaponize these fires. It seems like the predicaments that Algerians are living through have no stop inside. As you described very well, we had a pandemic and then there was fires and then you have repressive measures. So the political, the socio-economic and even the environmental situation in the country is devastating. Regarding the, the fires, those summer wildfires have always been a fact of life in Algeria. I remember growing up in the country and visiting the Kabylia, Tiziuzu, where I have family, that those fires always happen in summer. It's a usual occurrence. But the summer's fires have been the most widespread and devastating in the country's history. I think more than 70 fires have been recorded across the Kabylia region, Tiziuzu and Bejaya, and in other eastern and central parts of the country. Steve, we had Khanshla, Galma, Borj Bouaririj, Boumerdes, Tiaret, Jijel, I believe Belida as well, Boumerdes, and even in my hometown where my uh, small family lives, Skikta, 
in the eastern part of the country. Mm. But as you said, the Kabylie region, especially Tizi Wuzu, has been the worst impacted, the mostly affected region in the country. And people there have lost their livelihoods, their homes, and their livestock. And again, as with any other crisis in the country, the regime found itself incapable of effectively handling it. Firefighters and the volunteers were not able to put out the fires, so the Algerian government deployed the army to help. And we've seen a high toll of casualties. 90 people died, including 33 soldiers. And this high death toll is unprecedented in the country's history and is significantly higher than what is recorded in other countries in the Mediterranean that faced similar fires. So, for example, we've seen huge fires in Greece, in Turkey, in Italy, and I believe that Greece recorded around three deaths, Italy around five deaths, and Turkey nine. So when you compare, there is a huge, it's a significant difference. And here it's worth saying something around the causes of these fires. For me, as an environmental activist that worked on climate and environmental justice in the North African context, I believe that the causes are natural and due to the worsening climate change in the region. Climate change is intensifying the drought, see recurrent heat waves, we see soaring temperatures in the whole Mediterranean. These are perfect conditions for the spread of wildfires that can cause these kind of catastrophic damages. And there are many scientific reports who talk about the Mediterranean and the North African region, including the recent IPCC, which is the, the United Nations Panel of Experts on Climate Change. They released a new report on the realities of climate change in the whole world. And North Africa is one of the most impacted region when it comes to man-made climate change. We are seeing more droughts, more recurrent heat waves, water poverty. So these are going to escalate. And this, of course, when we say the causes are natural, this doesn't absolve the authorities and the regime from their own responsibilities because they didn't handle the crisis in an effective and good way. There has been a lack of up-to-date firefighting technologies and equipment in the country, no serious investment in the firefighting and forestry services in Algeria. Firefighters are not adequately trained and equipped to deal with fires of this magnitude. And most importantly, Algeria does not have the necessary aerial firefighting power to respond to such fires. So it relied on the European Union to send those planes, which came a little bit late. So if Algeria had those planes, I believe that the fires would have been contained much more swiftly and the death toll wouldn't be that high. So yeah, this is the situation. Many people in Kabylia and the rest of the country who suffered from these fires had suspicions of arsonists, people actually deliberately starting the fires. They say that the fires started in too many places at the same time, that it was a concerted effort by whoever, and some even go as far as 
thinking political motives are behind these arsonists, not just regular crazy people who enjoy starting fires, but actually people with a political motive. Tell us more about these theories, these doubts that people have about the origins of the fires, even if you yourself don't subscribe to them. You know, Khalil, I subscribe to them at first. You know, in Algeria, we always try to explain what is happening with the hand or the manipulations of the security services and every crisis that takes place. Usually, at least some people say it is because of the infighting between the factions of the regime. So they are putting those crises in the streets. But you can explain anything with conspiracy theories or with conspiracy. And it doesn't mean that those conspiracies do not take place. The Algerian regime or the Algerian security services are perfectly capable of creating crisis, of fanning the flames of divisions, of killing and massacring their own people, as we've seen in the Black Decade, the Civil War. So this history like, is the basis of this kind of paranoia and conspiracy theories. But then I think the responsibility, again, lies with the regime and its spokespeople. Because the first thing that the president Taboon and his interior minister and other spokespeople from the authorities is to say the fires are caused by arsonists and creating this climate of mistrust and paranoia that led to the people, at least most people, even when I, when I talk with my families, and I had many, many discussions with friends and family members. All of them believed that the fires were not natural, but they were caused at the hands of arsonists, either some criminals or the security services themselves or the separatist movement in the Kabylie, the, the movement for the autonomy of Kabylie called the MAC. So this climate created these conspiracy theories and led to more devastating and more cruel effects. So maybe just to say something on the that cruel incident that took place in in there was a mob that forcibly removed from a police van a man that was suspected of initiating a fire. They lynched him, they killed him, and they even set fire on his body. And there were horrific videos on social media showing even some people mutilating his body. And it turns out that this man is a 35-year-old artist, an activist. He has been involved in the Hirak. His name is Jamal bin Smail, who went to Tizi Wuzu to offer his humanitarian help to the local populations fighting fire. So you see, when I say the regime is responsible for this climate of mistrust and paranoia, and is indirectly responsible for the murder and the immolation and the mutilation of Jamal bin Smail. When I remember those videos, it has been really horrible. And the regime used this opportunity to blame everything on that separatist organization, the MAC, the Movement for the Autonomy of Kabylia, 
it's an organization that it placed on its terrorist watch list two months earlier. And this is in the context of the Hirak, the popular movement of the last two years, because the Algerian regime has tried to isolate and to demonize Kabylia for a long time, trying to create those divisions between Arabs and Berbers. And it used this opportunity again to try to demonize the whole region. That is Algerian researcher and activist Hamza Homashin speaking with Khalil Bendit about Algeria, which is experiencing deep social, political, environmental, and health crisis. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. So let's see how the the government tries to foment this division. We're talking about Kabylia, which is one of the largest Berber-speaking areas in Algeria. It's a big mountain. It's not far from Algiers. It's the heart of Algeria. And traditionally, before independence, the French had used this difference in language between the Berber speakers and the Arab speakers to try to drive a real wedge between basically two halves of the population. We talk about a Berber minority, but I think it's an exaggeration. <laughs> In Algeria, if anything, it's probably majority, majority. Or, or close to half of the population that speaks Berber as opposed to Arabic, and the other half speaks Arabic, which doesn't mean they necessarily identify as Arab either. They may know mm. they're Berber, they speak Arabic, but this fundamental division that the colonizer has always tried to exploit the same way they managed to pry the Algerian Jews from the Muslim Jews. This divide and conquer rule has apparently been adopted by the governments in independent Algeria because ever since 1962 that has been a recurrent theme in Algerian politics that whenever there's a problem let's try to pin it on Kabylia. How does this current situation with the COVID and the fires and the Iraq play into this division that the government is interested in, in fomenting and exaggerating and into this, I'm sure, marginal separatist movement that's called the MAC that you just referred to. Explain to us how that works. I think what the Algerian regime has been doing, its maneuvers, its manipulating tactics, its mode of governance, of divide and rule, as you said, has become extremely dangerous, not just for Algerians themselves, but for the nation's unity and for the nation's security. Because we've seen the consequences of such tactics, of such divisive politics. It can lead to violence. It can fan flames of divisions between regions of the country. And you're right to link this situation a little bit to the popular movement that erupted in Algeria in 2019, because that movement has shown for the first time the unity 
of people beyond linguistic and ethnic divisions. For the first time, people in all Algeria felt united against the authoritarian and military dictatorship that is ruling the country now. And of course, this has been perceived as a threat by the Algerian regime. There are many, many examples that we could bring here to show how the Algerian regime has been using this card since three to four decades ago. But without going back decades earlier, let's just go to the near history. Two years ago, since the beginning, the then de facto ruler, General Gayed Saleh, was doing everything to create a kind of feeling or mood that what the Hirak is infiltrated by a minority from Kabylia that is trying to undermine national unity, that is undermining national security, and so forth. So for me, these latest episodes in Kabylia are part of this strategy. It is a continuation of those divisive tactics. So now they blamed everything falls in its place for the Algerian regime, right? They say it's arsonists, and then they blame everything on this uh, separatist, this marginal, as you said, you're correct. It's marginal separatist movement creating the feeling that there is an entity or a popular organization or a massive movement in the Kabylie region that wants to divide the country. And of course, this is a kind of a blow to the Hirak and its unity. It creates that climate of fear and tensions. But I think the regime is betting too much on these tactics because just a few days after the death of Jamal bin Smail, the activist that has been... That was lynched. Yeah, was lynched and uh, mutilated in, in Tizi Wuzu, his father came to the public scene and asked people to be calm, to be wise, to not jump into conclusions. And he said that Kabil, our brothers and sisters, we are Algerians, we are close to each other, and we shouldn't be demonizing the whole region. Just to say something about the MAC, maybe for the listeners. The MAC has been allowed for a long time in universities, and it has never been banned. They allow them to hold meetings, to organize protests. They put them only on the tourist watch list two months ago. Why? We need to ask, why are they doing this? The Algerian regime is trying to create internal enemies to blame everything on them. And there is even a link between the MAC and the Moroccan regime. Now, the Algerian regime is saying that MAC is getting help from Morocco to destabilize the country. So create an internal enemy, create an external enemy, and try to divide the population, to create an atmosphere of fear that would alienate. For me, it's a clear attempt to bury the Hirak, so the Hirak won't come back again. And I hope it won't succeed. During the Hirak, during those months of spectacular protests and continuous protests that lasted more than a year, we would see Berber flags, the so-called Berber flags, that Amazir symbol. And they were alongside Algerian flags, and they didn't seem to be a big issue between 
different flags. People seem to be in solidarity with one another. And as you mentioned, that general who has died in the meantime was trying to use that as a dividing line. That didn't work. They protested and reacted very well, very cleverly, and they refused to be divided. But this is popping up again during this fire crisis. Tell us how Vince Madden's father's reaction, why was that so critical? Why was that so helpful in putting down the flames, so to speak? Why was it such an important piece of just bringing back the solidarity and saying, no, this is not going to work. The dividing tactics are not going to work. I think in a climate of devastation, catastrophe from the pandemic, from the wildfires, we've seen hundreds of people die from COVID-19, and then another 90 die in those wildfires. The repression, the general climate of repression in the country, people were overwhelmed, especially in the Kabylia region seeing their livelihoods being lost, their houses being burned, their livestock dying. It created an atmosphere of despair, of fear, of alienation. And then when we saw the lynching of that young man who turned out to be innocent, who turned out to be an activist caring for his own people and going to Kabylia to help his brothers and sisters in face of those fires, the videos that circulated in social media were really horrific. It shocked the nation, Khalid. Really, people were shocked. I've been following on Twitter and some on social media and talking to friends here and there. People were shocked and really scared about the consequences. What would happen next? That lynching is something that has not been witnessed before. And maybe this is the power of social media of live videos, everything is recorded thousands of times. So a lot of activists, a lot of people were scared that things would escalate and it would lead to serious division and escalation of violence. And the people from Ain Defla, where um, the victim originated, people feared that there will be violence there. We've seen some tensions in social media, but I don't know. The tensions in social media usually are exaggerated and some of them are manipulated by the security services. So we, we cannot know the whole picture. So when Jamal bin Ismail's father came to the public scene and made those declarations, for me, he had a higher moral ground than the regime. You could say in countercurrent to the regime's stance of trying to divide. He said, we need to be united. And that changed the mood. People were impressed. Imagine that he came and said, the Kabyles are enemies and we need to take revenge. Things would have escalated. So it's the yeah. fact that here's a man, Ben Smail, who was wrongly persecuted and horribly mutilated, burned, lynched, who was not from the Kabylia, who's an outsider, if you want. So it goes against the narrative of putting people against one another. Here's somebody from outside trying to help his brothers in a different area of Algeria, and he is killed. And mm. instead of that helping the narrative of, ah, you see, Kabyles cannot get along with Arab speakers, the fact that the father came to the fore and said, no, they killed my son, but they didn't kill him because they hate non-Kabyles, and let's not fall into that trap. I think that was part of the magic of this father's soothing 
message. No, exactly. And then we've seen the continuation of solidarity initiatives and trips from all parts of the country to the Kabylie region, helping them, bringing them medical and food material. So that unity is so strong. And that solidarity between people from different regions is the one threat to the regime that always they tried to break. But it didn't happen. Fortunately, it didn't happen. So the lack of water that you mentioned previously is a big issue in Algeria and North Africa in general. It's a big issue here in California, for that matter. But certainly North Africa is one of the absolute most threatened areas of the world by, as they call it, desertification. Tell us about this lack of water, which has been a sore point this summer, in addition to all the other troubles. It's not a new issue in Algeria. We've always suffered from a very arid climate. What is going on in terms of climate change? How is Algeria trying to cope with this? I mean, where do they get their water in the midst of this worsening drought? As you mentioned, Khalil, water scarcity is not a new phenomenon in Algeria. I remember all my childhood having some water issues and problems in various parts of the country, including the northern parts, which is near the Mediterranean. You would expect a much more clement climate, but these issues have been there. And as you said, North Africa is one of the most water poor regions in the world. Algeria, from the latest statistics, suffers from absolute water poverty which is defined by the World Bank as having around 500 cubic meters per person per year. I believe that Algeria has around 300 something cubic meter per year. So Algeria suffers. And as you mentioned, it's largely an arid, semi-arid country. Most of the water for agriculture comes from rainfall. There are some water aquifers in the Sahara that are divided between Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya. But those water aquifers, non-renewable, so the moment you start using them or over-consuming them, you are exacerbating the water issues in the country. And I would come back to those water aquifers in the Sahara in a minute. But climate change and the impact of climate change are exacerbating the, these situations. We have seen several droughts in various countries in North Africa in the last decade recurrent heat waves with devastating impacts on small-scale farmers who rely on water for their survival. Countries like Algeria, who depend on international markets for food, when the water situation gets worse, our production of cereals and grains deteriorates, gets worse, which means more food imports and more dependence on international markets. So the situation is going to get even worse in the coming decades. And I don't believe that the Algerian authorities or the Algerian ruling elites are doing much. There are some desalination projects to resolve the problem in the northern parts of the country. But those projects are costly and energy intensive. Second, there is no talk about transition to renewable energy. So the country is going to suffer if the global North countries or European countries would stop buying gas and oil from us 
in the following decades. So there is short-sightedness. Just continue to exploit oil and gas, and the situation would improve by its own. It won't. And then just to come back to those aquifers in the Sahara and to tell you about the craziness of some of the economic choices made by our governments, the governments now are engaging in agribusiness enterprises, basically trying to use Saharan land and pumping the waters from those non-renewable resources from the aquifers to farm tomatoes, strawberries, and some products for exports. Basically, we are going down the same paths as Tunisia and Morocco. We are over-exploiting and exhausting our water resources in order to create those huge agricultural monocrop fields to export them to Europe. And it's not just tomatoes, it's watermelons as well. So in a way, we are virtually exporting the water that we don't have. And this is the craziness of the situation. And again, this problem of climate change is a global environmental issue where countries like Algeria are more vulnerable to the climate change that has been caused by industrialized nations with their capitalist mode of production. So here there is also a question of equity. Algeria and other countries in the global south cannot face devastating and disastrous impact of climate change on its own. This needs to be resolved at a global scale, and that would involve paying climate debts to countries like Algeria and helping them with the transition to renewable energy. And Algeria has the potential, has the capacity to develop renewable energy, especially from solar power. When you compare to Morocco and Tunisia next door, do you see any better orientation in terms of trying to get renewable resources with all that solar energy that's just the gift from the heavens. There's enough sun in those three countries to really create a solar superpower. And I think this is something that we should think about. I think maybe we had that conversation before. A Maghreb of the people, a democratic Maghreb, where the ruling elites really work for their own population, creating a market that looks to the interests of its own people. And there are huge possibilities when it comes to renewables, to agriculture, to sharing resources, and building an integrated economic system. Most of the regions in the world work this way. The European Union works this way. <laughs> why, why don't we? Because of various reasons, which is the lack of democracy, authoritarian regimes, and you know, ruling elites that just enrich themselves at the expense of the majority of their populations. To answer your question, if we compare Algeria, Tunisia, and, and Morocco, Morocco is much more advanced when it comes to the renewable energy sector because it does not have oil and gas like Algeria or Tunisia to, to a lower extent. So it does not have this rent and it feels forced to go down that path because it, it imports most of its energy needs, including from Algeria. But the energy transition in Morocco is not taking place in a just way. Those projects, big solar and wind projects, are happening at the expense of local populations, populations or communities of agro-pastoralists. 
So solar plants like in Warzazet, in Middelt, and in other parts of the country are installed on agro-pastoralist lands without their approval and without their knowledge. So suddenly they see those solar plants being built on their own land. And there have been various protests, including in Middelt, that is being built right now. I think it will be online in 2022. The CDIED community has been, you could say, dispossessed of this range land they use it for pasture for their animals. And then the question of Western Sahara. Again, many solar plants and wind farms are being installed on the occupied zone of Western Sahara at the expense of Sahrawis' right for self-determination. So this is like the general political situation. But then these projects are dominated by the private sector, including the royal companies, the companies affiliated to the Mahzen, to the king itself, who controls large sectors of the economy. And they come at huge debts. So these huge projects necessitate debts from outside, which are backed by Moroccan guarantees. So if these projects fail, it's the Moroccan people who would be paying for them. So I have a lot of reservations, and I actually am writing a lot about this energy transition right now. I always think about the transition is happening, but justice is not guaranteed. You could replace the energy source from oil and gas to solar and wind and green hydrogen, but you can maintain the same structures of dispossession, of oppression and exclusion of people. So nothing changes under the sun. It's good to invest in renewables, but we need to think about much more equitable and just ways of doing so. So speaking about this relationship between Algeria and Morocco and Tunisia, mostly about the two large countries, Algeria and Morocco, Algeria broke diplomatic relations a few weeks ago with Morocco. Tell us a little bit what happened there. What was the pretext or the cause of this rupture? I think one thing to say is that this has been at least the breaking of the diplomatic relations has been long in, in the making. Tensions between the Algerian and Moroccan regimes has been there for decades, especially around the question uh, of Western Sahara, around their different stances on the question of Western Sahara. So Algeria supports the right of Sahrawis for self-determination, has been given support to the refugees who are based in their land in Tindouf, around 170,000 to 200,000 Sahrawi refugees in southwestern Algeria, in Tindouf. Morocco has been occupying the rich land of Western Sahara since 1975. Western Sahara is richly endowed with fishery resources, with phosphates, with fertile lands where Morocco uses them to produce tomatoes, also offshore resources that Morocco and foreign companies are trying to explore oil and gas. So this is the general context. But in the last few months, there has been growing hostilities from the Morocco side towards Algeria. I would say that Morocco feels emboldened to some extent by its own positions and its foreign diplomacy, especially after it normalized the relations with Israel through Trump, recognizing its right and sovereignty over Western Sahara, the occupied zone 
in Western Sahara. So the Moroccan ambassador to the United Nations a few weeks ago made a declaration around the Kabylia, describing it as an Algerian colony, and distributed a document to various delegations of the non-aligned movement in the United Nations, showing Moroccan support for the right of Kabyle for their self-determination. So that has been perceived as a hostile, very hostile move, rightly so, from the Algerian diplomacy. And add to this, I'm sure you are aware of the scandal around that spying software Pegasus. There was an investigation done by many journalists, including in France, Spain, revealing that Morocco has been spying on thousands of Algerian officials. To make it even worse, this is Israeli spyware, not just any spyware. And add to this, Morocco has been conducting some military maneuvers with the Americans and I'm sure with the Israelis on the borders with Algeria. And even the simulation is against the Algerian regime. So all these hostile moves led to Algeria taking that decision of breaking its relations, diplomatic relations with Morocco. But I think one important element, at least this is my personal view, is I feel that Morocco is becoming an outpost of American and European imperialism on the continent and in the region. And with its recent normalizations of relations with Israel, the situation is becoming really worrying in the region. There is a race between Algeria and Morocco for armament. Both regimes spend a lot of their money and their budgets on armament. At least in the short term, I don't see it as a full-blown war, but it creates some kind of instability in the region. And this is not good for Algerians, for Moroccans and for Sahrawis and even for people in Western Africa, like Mali, Niger, and Mauritania. So do you see this deliberate provocation on the part of the Moroccan government? Do you see that as an attempt to create a distraction from its own people? Because there's also a Hirak movement in Morocco, and there's some solidarity between the two Hiraks in Algeria. How do you explain this other than feeling emboldened, as you said, by Israel and by the Trump's USA? How do you explain this deliberate provocation on the part of the Moroccans? I think the way I see it, Khalil, is is that strategy of hitting two birds with one stone. So Morocco is carrying out its diplomatic offensive in a particular context. It feels emboldened at the international scene after the normalizations with Israel and the support of the United States for its sovereignty over Western Sahara. When I say emboldened, there are many episodes, Khalil. There is the episode with Germany, for example, where it called its Moroccan ambassador from Germany, like asserting its position against Germany when they dared to say something about Western Sahara. The same thing happened with with Spain. Spain. I don't remember exactly when, but it's a few months ago, when the leader of the Sahrawis went for treatment from COVID-19 to Spain. So Morocco created suddenly this immigration crisis, let 
a lot of Moroccans and other African immigrants go to Soita and Melilla. Kind uh, of Spanish country. enclave within Morocco, but, and there's Spanish sovereignty. Exactly. Mm. So it created a diplomatic crisis. That's why I feel it's been bolder at the international scene. And it's taken the opportunity that the Algerian regime is going through a multidimensional crisis. Political, economic, environmental. They know about the current instability inside the regime itself, the uh, internal infighting. But at the same time, it's using it to divert its own population, Moroccans, from their suffering, from their poverty, from unemployment, to create, again, an external enemy. And the same thing is being done by the Algerians themselves. So when I say the Algerians were right, maybe to break the diplomatic relations, but at the same time, it's creating a boogeyman accusing Morocco of all the ills. So both regimes are not serving their own populations. They are only thinking about their survivals and how to consolidate their own rules. To come back to the devastation of the fires in Algeria, personally, I know a good friend of mine who's there in Kabylia. His family lost 300 olive trees. And this is what they rely on for survival. This is traditionally what has allowed that family to live. How do people in Algeria who suffer this sort of, of loss, whether it's somebody to COVID, who's the bread earner in the family, or their own small property they're subsisting on, how do these people survive? Is there any government aid? What is their survival mechanism? There are always promises, Khalil. We've seen this several, several times in the past. The authorities always promises compensations, financial aid, promises jobs, promises housing, but they never materialize. And, and when they materialize, they go through corruption channels and they get grabbed by, you know, the less deserving, to say the least. For me, like to answer your questions, if it wasn't up for solidarity between populations, between families, yes. I would say people would go into absolute poverty. Because just in the last two years, especially under the pandemic, hundreds of thousands lost their jobs. As you know, most of the Algerian economy is in the informal sector, at least most of the working people, at least 50%, work in the informal sector. Under the pandemic, most of these people lost their income, lost their jobs. I haven't checked the latest statistics on poverty, or in, I prefer to say impoverishment, I'm sure the World Bank and the IMF always do the, the, this year yearly. I'm sure that the poverty levels increased. And hundreds of thousands of jobs means less income, means poverty, and means suffering. So if it wasn't up for the solidarity between people and their families, I think the situations would have been much more catastrophic. And the regime, which has no legitimacy, has never been in, in the business of serving people or helping the most vulnerable. It's not. The current regime is, is a nexus between the military and the oligarchy, those nouveau riche, rich businessmen who got most of their wealth through corrupt deals at the expense of the people. Algeria is a very rich country when it comes to oil and gas, but the economic situation is worsening. 
and I fear that another explosion is coming, and I hope it's not going to be a violent explosion. Thank you, Hamza, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Any last uh, comments you'd like to make? Even I finished with uh, a pessimistic note. I am a hopeful person, and maybe in the short term, things will be even more difficult, but hopefully in the medium term, things would change and maybe the popular movement, the Hirak, would come back again in a different light or in a different spirit. That's what I'm hoping, Khalid. Hamza Homoshin is a London-based Algerian researcher, activist, commentator, and a founding member of Algeria Solidarity Campaign and Environmental Justice North Africa. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. (laughs) 